This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Helen Farmer with you on today's episode, a real health special starting with human health and the little ones. Dr. Rania's specialist paediatrician was on hand as we talked about the vaccinations our kids need, the ones they can opt into and some common misconceptions too. Turning our attention to women's health and menopause in the workplace, the policies that are happening worldwide and ultimately managing your symptoms with lifestyle. And it was consultant thoracic surgeon, um, the fantastic Dr. James from King's on hand as we got to the bottom of lung health and lung cancer in the UAE. And of course, that burning question about the health implications of vapes. And then moving our attentions to our fairy friends, Dr. Joanna Porto was live in the studio answering my questions, but most importantly yours about all things animal from cognitive decline to, of course, a bit of toilet talk too. Dr. Rania is in the studio, an incredibly experienced paediatrician, originally from Lebanon, grew up here in the UAE, studied medicine in London, and we're delighted to have her back in Dubai since 2009, where she's the medical director at Circle Care Clinic. And Dr. Rania, you were my go-to sense check all the way through COVID. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, the numbers are overwhelming. I don't understand. What does Dr. Rania say? So I have to say, I think you're a fantastic follow on Instagram, and I know a real trusted doctor for so many families here in Dubai. And I wanted to bring you in to talk about vaccinations. Um, Before we get to talking about what kids do get, what kids should get, what is going on with the UAE right now in terms of kids' sickness? What's coming into clinic? So much is coming into clinic. So um, we're seeing um, still a little bit of influenza, mainly influenza B. We're seeing lots of strep throat. Um, There's another wave. There was a wave somewhere around September, October. And we're seeing lots of viruses that funnily test negative on these rapid tests. Everyone's taken to doing rapid tests now at the clinic. Um, But viruses that just give symptoms that are so prolonged that very many children do end up with secondary infections. Such as after um, that. What, what kind of symptoms are, are, are being noticed? So um, most viruses will start with your typical fever, you know, runny nose, cough, um, headache, body aches. And then because everyone's now aware of, you know, this could be influenza, this could, especially people who did not take the vaccine will come in to try and get checked because there is always the option of treat them, mm-hmm. treatment. And then, um, and then beyond that, if a fever lasts more than four or five days and then a child looks like they're not improving mm-hmm. um, or they're getting worse, that sometimes can be a sign that there is a little pocket of infection that's now a secondary bacterial infection somewhere. With the little ones, it's usually middle ear infections. With the older ones, it could even be pneumonias or chest infections and yeah, things like that. Yeah, I had that. a friend message me last night saying, unfortunately, her little ones in hospital with pneumonia and they'd had, I think she said five or six other children being admitted with the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as a mum and as a doctor, mm-hmm. what's in your medical kit at home what, what are some of your go-to's <laughs> oh god i don't know if mine is the best medical kit you know Go you say? so um definitely fever reducers which i tend to not use unless the fever is actually quite high because fever is a protective reaction by the body um, viruses don't survive at high temperatures which is why our body's so clever but uh, i tend to use them more when when my kids are feeling a bit like they're in pain or they're feeling unwell or the fever's followed a pattern well i know where i know it will rise overnight mm-hmm. and i want them to get a good night's sleep um, and lots of saline nasal spray. There's nothing better than, I know it sounds very sort of traditional and over the counter, but actually there's nothing better than spraying the nose, especially with the little ones that they just don't know how to blow their noses. And actually, if you can emulate that with your, with your baby or toddler, you can avoid a lot of secondary infections and you can really improve congestion. Um, and to be honest, not more than that, honey, lemon, ginger. I mean, I know there are lots of cough syrups, but to be honest, they're very sugary and the, uh, the research says they don't particularly work. Speaking of things not particularly working, <laughs> um, any home remi- re- any home remedies you're like, oh, for goodness sake, stop so, doing that. Uh, uh, okay, I'll tell you. So it's the rubbing of the eucalyptus um, balms on the chest 
with the idea that the chest absorbs them through your skin and your muscles and your ribs into your lungs and that helps you and actually what what it does is and it's a very old sort of Swedish or um, uh, you know Nordic uh, remedy where you rub these balms either on your feet and put socks on or the chest it's the body heat that helps the smell emit which is a decongestant rather than the and maybe it's the massage of the rubbing that actually is not actually the balm itself seeping in permeating exactly so that's like the, the Vicks vapor rub that my granny Absolutely. was always yeah. smothering me with Absolutely. So it's the body heat that, as you say, kind yeah. of gets that bomb going, and then yeah. then you kind of inhale Smell it, it exactly and inhale it. Yeah. Otherwise, you know. All Otherwise, those... it's a nice rub, you know. Yeah. yeah which is always but if, nice. But if it permeated your yes. skin, your muscles. I mean, <laughs> a lot of us would have some very some very tanned organs from the self tan. Absolutely. Um, right. The phone lines are open. Dr. Rania is in the studio. If you've got any questions for her, can we? We said specialist paediatricians we can help help out with any aspect of children's health but up next we are talking vaccines myths and misconceptions how they work and what our children need caitlin's saying um we're going to come to the text line in just a minute but just a heads up do babies get some immunity via breast milk if their mother is vaccinated and vahed thank you i was thinking the same thing what is the latest with the covid covid vaccine and kids we'll find out next Joining us live in studio to answer my questions and most importantly yours, coming in on the text line is medical director and specialist paediatrician from Circle Care Clinic, Dr. Rania. Let's talk vaccinations. Um, I want you to pretend I'm basically, I don't know, seven years old. (laughs) How do they work? Um, Well, if you were seven years old, I would say vaccines give you a shield, which helps um, all these nasty bugs and viruses bounce off your body, which essentially is how they work. So unfortunately, we still have not advanced enough to deliver them, you know, in any way apart from an injection. You know, that would be great. But the way they work is they introduce a version of the illness you're trying to protect against in your body to have your immune system learn what it looks like in terms of shape more often so that your immune system then builds an army that's specific to that illness. So when you're faced with the actual illness, you fight it off, hopefully before you get any symptoms or you get a very mild version of the illness Mm -hmm. and then you're protected from all the complications of it. And that's it in a nutshell. What are some of the myths and misconceptions that you hear frequently about vaccines? So the, 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 the sort of the elephant in the room, I'd say, with the MMR and its link to autism. And um, as much as scientifically, this has been disproven. And the doctor who first, you know, spoke about this and, and published about this was, you know, sort of he was his, his title was taken away. He was jailed. His, his, the Lancet had to denounce that that study, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People are, are still worried about this potential link. And I find since COVID, it's become a little bit worse. It's almost like the pendulum has swung where people suddenly felt they had vaccines shoved down their throats. And, and now they're sort of rethinking all of that. And I get this, I get this conversation saying, I'm now wondering with people with their third child and they would have vaccinated the first two saying, I'm now wondering if I want to give MMR to my to my third. You know, just we all had all these vaccines during COVID and now I don't know if I want to give MMR to my one year old. And I say, but what's the connection? And and it's it's that as well as potential um, side effects that certain vaccines might give you as well as potential additives within the vaccine and their effect on your body. And all I can say, all of these misconceptions to me are a, a sign of the success of vaccines because these people have no idea what the diseases themselves do. They've never seen them. They've never, they don't, you know, they might have sort of great grand uncles who might have died because of measles, but actually on, mm. on the ground now, they're just worried about these potential issues, whereas they're forgetting the big reason for vaccines. We did see a measles outbreak in the UK recently. Why? COVID and the reduction in vaccine uptake. And although people might say, but hang on, that was three years ago. I mean, um, the MMR vaccine is given at one year old and then another dose is given in this country at 18 months around the world in some places again at four years old. So all those one year olds who missed their MMR because people were quarantining, because they didn't have access to care, because they were, you know, um, whatever the reason was, are now attending school. And those people who do not have um, immunity against measles, Mm -hmm. if you get one case, then it bounces around. You need around 95% vaccine uptake to get herd immunity. In some parts of London, it's now as low as 65%. Gosh. Which, yeah, exactly. And that's the reason. And honestly, I trained in the UK. And back then, I only saw one case of measles. 
Okay, people who trained in other places of the world, you know, have would have seen hundreds. That's the success of the measles vaccines, where now there are more cases. So I have colleagues now telling me they're coming through the door every day. Gosh, Dr. Ryan, you're with us today from Circle Care Clinic, specialist paediatrician. Uh, we were just talking earlier about what's in our kind of our, our little, little black book in our medical kit message here saying saline nasal spray, steam inhalation always works for my daughter. Uh, Vash is saying, can you take your child for their vaccinations when they've got a cough or cold? Will the doctor let, um, let you have them? My 11-week-old has due some jabs, um, but she's caught something from a two-year-old brother in nursery. So it depends at what stage of the illness the baby's in or child's in. So especially if they're a baby. So I'll say specifically for those first vaccines, if your child has had a runny nose and a cough and cold for four or five days and is feeding well and doesn't have a fever, they're at the tail end of the virus, then yes, they're okay. If it's the first day, you don't know how that's developing. I personally tend to wait a couple of days and I say you can always pop in and get your vaccines, you know, end of the week. Okay. Yeah. Hope that helps, Varsha, and hope, uh, hope little one is on the mend. So let's talk about which vaccines are I mean, is mandatory the right word here in the UAE or I guess recommended? Recommended. Okay. I would, yeah, no so, vaccines mandatory. So from hospital all the mm. way through, can, mm. can we, would you mind giving us a yes. bit of a timeline? Yeah, of course. So when babies are born here in the UAE, the recommendation is to get the BCG vaccine, which protects against tuberculosis. That's the one that leaves the scar at the top of your right uh, left arm and the first dose of the hepatitis B vaccine. And then at two months, four months and six months, they get um, a booster if they have B mixed in with the diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, Protestus is whooping cough, polio, um, haemophilus influenzae B, which is an infection that can cause pneumonia meningitis in babies, um, um, and um, pneumococcal vaccine from the name pneumonia. Pneumococcal can also cause meningitis and pneumonia in babies, and rotavirus, which is one of the most common uh, stomach viruses mm-hmm. that can lead to dehydration, hospitalization, etc. Those are repeated two, four, six months, and then. Next recommended vaccines are the ones at one year old, which are for MMR and chickenpox. And then beyond the age of one, a new vaccine that comes in is hepatitis A, which is one of the uh, types of hepatitis that is through contaminated food. So by that age, your child's eating with you at restaurants, traveling with you and eating in all sorts of nice tropical places. So it makes sense to protect them there. And then we very much recommend the meningitis vaccines, especially in the first year two of life, not because meningitis is epidemic or common, but because it's extremely dangerous okay and in terms of i guess who the job falls to so (laughs) you know coming from the uk you'd be getting letters through the door Mm. saying you know your child is due xyz is that the case here or is the the onus very much on the parent to be keep on top of the calendar? So I would say the onus is on the parent, not that that's the best system, because you have very much privatised and personalised healthcare. So if you um, um, sort of are at go to a clinic, like let's say our clinic sends out email reminders to patients already registered mm-hmm. to trigger a week before the date that's it's set to trigger you booking an appointment. Other, other paediatricians will say, please book your next appointment by the state. So if you have an appointment, you'll always get a confirmation. But if left alone, very often, sometimes schools will go through the latest vaccine record you've given, which is often like two or three years old, so you don't update I, it, I know, right? This is what I was about to say. I know, yeah, yeah, I know. You forget, especially if your child's been at the school for years. Big time. Yeah. Um, so schools tend to play a big role here to remind parents. Any questions for Dr. Ron, you get in touch. A message here from Al saying, can you please explain a bit more about herd immunity? I don't understand why it matters if you're surrounded by 95 immunised people and you aren't. Um, the 96th person you're standing next to a disease you're trying to avoid. Can you explain the concept of it? So um, it's a very good question. Um, and I say, I, this anyone who comes into my office who basically says they're an anti-vaxxer. And I say you can only be an anti-vaxxer because of herd immunity. That's why you have the luxury. It's true. Um, so what herd immunity is, If it's, they, they calculate the percentage of people who carry the immunity against a disease which limit its spread person to person. Which So when you have an immunity, you cannot host, you cannot be a host for that disease. And at certain percentages, there are enough people lying around who don't have the immunity that can either pass it to you or get sick with it and infect several. And obviously differs diseases how contagious that is mm-hmm. so some diseases probably need less herd, but usually it's around the 95 percent great question now we are going to go to the text line next we've had questions about immunity via breast milk about the latest on the covid vaccine here bernard wants to know about what about traveling how long should you have a vaccine before traveling for it to be effective and um no name on this one and you can be completely anonymous flu vaccine in my teen daughter um some liquid came out of the injection site and i'm now worried she hasn't had enough 
This content is for informational purposes only and is not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Joining us in studio is Dr. Rania from Circle Care Clinic, experienced paediatrician, decades of experience. She's a medical director there and we're going to go to the text line on all things vaccinations. So if you have been sitting at home or in car and thinking, oh gosh, I really need to ask that. Now is the time because we're going to run out of time um, very, very soon indeed. Um, before we get to the text, I wanted to ask about the, you mentioned earlier the kind of the timeline of vaccinations that babies and, and, uh, and children have. There are some additional, I guess, and some seasonal. So flu vaccine and HPV as mm-hmm. well. Can you talk quickly? I mean, is it too late now, February, to be thinking about the flu vaccine? Mm-hmm. Maybe end of the maybe, season? Maybe yes. May, I would say maybe yes. I mean, never say never. Some protection is better than none. But let's say if you're about to go traveling and really were worried about, because there is influenza at airports, for planes and didn't want to risk catching it. And you knew you were going to go, let's say for now, it's a bit too close to half term. But anyway, mm-hmm. it would be an idea, but probably yes. And, and HPV, um, it is, uh, we've just had cervical cancer awareness yeah. month and we've touched it on the show, but mainly to do with adults. Mm. Can we talk teens and HPV? Yep, absolutely. It's a no brainer, people, honestly. It's when, and I know people have heard that this, for, for, you know, from, from adult doctors, from gynecologists, but when you link a virus with a cancer and you create a vaccine to protect you against that virus, you practically reduce to almost nothing your risk of that cancer a cancer that will affect you know lots of at least one in four women you know Mm -hmm. a huge number of women and the the beauty of vaccinating your children especially when they're as young as 11 or 12 is that their immunogenicity their ability to retain immunity from that two-dose course that's the big advantage when they're young is better than even when they're 15 or 16 that's what the latest studies have shown and obviously, we're talking about cervical cancer here, but it's yeah. really important for perhaps both genders. Absolutely. And and the reason is that there are some male cancers that are linked to HPV. But the big issue is that we don't have screening tests for male HPV disease, whereas, you know, women do pap smears. Um, so because of that and because they are the carriers, they can be silent carriers. Um, if you want to protect your children, your daughters against um, HPV, you would love uh, boys out there to be vaccinated. And if you have yeah. boys, do the same. Play your part. Yeah. Right. How do you feel about a quick fire round on the text line, Dr. Rania? Let's go for okay. it. Okay. Matic here saying, my kids were given the varicella vaccination against chickenpox as babies. The school have sent a circular saying that now at the age of 14, they should be getting a booster. Not sure if we want to do this. As previously, a doctor told me they shouldn't be vaccinated for chickenpox or they'll end up getting shingles as adults. Is that correct? No, no. Actually, being vaccinated against chickenpox prevents the varicella virus entering your body which all of us who had chickenpox as children have that virus living in our nerve roots dormant, which can get activated into shingles at any time in our lives. So preventing the virus entering your body prevents your risk of shingles. That is the big selling point of the varicella vaccine. A booster at 14, two, for now it's two doses, one at one, uh, one year old and one between four and six. So if the, her child hadn't had the second dose, maybe yes, but if, if the, her child has, she doesn't. Need, they don't need the booster at 14. Is there an upper limit to when you can have a booster or indeed a maximum amount of time between the two? No, no. And if you have any doubt whether you've had as an adult, if you've never had chicken pox, get your uh, varicella vaccine, two doses, one month apart. Okay. Caitlin's saying, do babies get some immunity via breast milk if their mother is vaccinated? Yes, but it doesn't equal the immunity they will make on their own. But babies depend on their mother's immunity for the, the you know, babies who are breastfed mothers who can, um, uh, during those first two months before their first vaccines, they depend on that immunity. Vahid, thank you for raising this. What is the latest with the COVID vaccine and kids in the UAE? I have no idea, like literally no idea. Um, To be honest, I would say neither do I because there isn't a latest. So the latest with COVID now, restrictions have reduced even further. The advice is that if you have COVID, you know, treat it like any cold, be sensible. If you're unwell, stay at home. If you're well, go to work and avoid people who might be immunocompromised. Wear a mask when you feel you're putting others at risk. Keep calm and carry on. Common sense. Yep. Um, Bernard saying, how about when traveling? How long should you allow for a vaccine to become effective before you get on the plane? Great question. mm, I would say about two weeks. So we get this a lot with the teenagers going on their trips school trips to Tanzania, Nepal, whatever. So I would say they want to get their typhoid vaccine, other vaccines that are recommended for those trips. About two weeks is enough to begin to build immunity. And this is obviously for that kind of incubation period, but also Mm. in case they do have any side effects to feel 
better before their trip. Most of us, not really. Most of the side effects are gone by a day if they're there. So yeah, no, it's mainly to build enough of that army of antibodies so that if you're faced with the illness, you don't catch it. Anonymous message here saying, advice please, flu vaccine in my teen daughter before Christmas. After the doctor injected it and went to put the plaster on, she said, oops, a little bit wants to get away. And I looked down and saw a small amount of clear liquid coming out of the injection site. I said, has it gone in properly? She said, yes. But now I'm worried my daughter hasn't had enough of the vaccine. I wouldn't worry. A small drop looks like an awful lot. Most vaccines have a volume of about, um, you know, one milliliter cubed. If you've looked at that, it's actually quite big. If you give your children Panadol or, you know, whatever it is, paracetamol, um, I wouldn't worry and I wouldn't repeat it. Um, There's probably enough there to raise an immune response. Dr. Rania, we've been chatting since two about vaccinations. <laughs> I think it's really interesting. And, and it, it, it came up with our school the other day about, and mm-hmm. I was like, I don't even know where the kids' vaccination books mm-hmm. are. So we're opting in. Um, mm-hmm. My mum's like, I am never coming with you to the clinic to get the girls' jabs ever again. My mum found it genuinely upsetting. I was like, well, <laughs> let the school do it this time. What do you feel like we haven't touched on, that we haven't addressed, that you feel like is really important for people listening today to understand about their kids' immunity vaccinations in particular? Um, I would say that... People sometimes mix or, 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 or um, uh, you know, confuse what their insurance policies will cover in terms of vaccines versus what is necessary to protect their child. And I understand where the confusion comes from, but we have to understand that very often insurance companies will cover what is public health deemed um, uh, the proper vaccine schedule. But in, on an individual basis, risks do differ. So the meningitis vaccine, for instance, when you travel and as we, we you know, like, like we're hearing with measles, it makes all sense that all diseases will rise after a period like COVID where people's uptake of vaccines was less. So when you have an illness as as dangerous and as near fatal as meningococcal meningitis with vaccines out there available to vaccinate your child, it makes absolute sense to protect them. And I guess my other question is, do you, for making an appointment, mm. do you just call up and say, hi, I want to book, want to book my you know son or daughter in for HPV. Do you make an initial appointment with the doctor and then you get a follow-up for the jab? How does it work yeah, logistically? So, so, so if you're not known to the clinic, usually a doctor needs to see your child to make sure that they don't have any anything in their medical history that you know contraindicates that, that vaccine. But then for, uh, in our clinic, jabs, follow-on jabs happen with the nurses. And if you're a known patient to the clinic, has have been seen in the last six months, you actually don't need to see a physician at that time. Dr. Rania, thank you. You speak so, so well, honestly. It really, I, I always feel so reassured after speaking to you. And I have to say, your Instagram is such a brilliant resource. You're more than welcome to give it a shout out. People are going to give you a follow. Oh, it's Dr. Rania DXB. Could be easier. Thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you. Really, really appreciate it. Now get Thanks. back to the clinic. I'm sure you've got mm-hmm. some kids waiting to see you. <laughs> Dr. Rania there. This content is for informational purposes only and is not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. We are talking women's health this half hour, and this is because most working women aged 40 to 60 have experienced symptoms relating to menopause transition. Over half have been unable to go into work at some point due to those symptoms, according to CIPD. This is out of the UK. Most common symptoms reported are psychological mood disturbances, anxiety, depression, memory loss, panic attacks, loss of confidence and reduced concentration. This is reported by two thirds of women and over half of the respondents were able able to think of a time when they were unable to go into work because of those symptoms. So drawing on decades of experience, we're bringing in Livia Reese. She is Menopause Livia founder, pro athlete, health and fitness expert to talk about the importance of mindset, nutrition, exercise, and ultimately how workplaces can be better supporting um, a really important part of the, of, the, of the workforce. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thank you. I hope you're having a good day today, everybody. Yeah, we're having a great one. And I have to say, already lots of messages for you. Oh, good. And I'm, I'm really happy because I'm, I'm going to continue to beat the drum on this because I don't feel like enough mm. people are talking about menopause. I feel like the conversation has shifted, certainly internationally. But over one billion women are going to be in menopause next mm. year. So I wanted to ask, how have you seen the conversation changing here in the UAE, but internationally as well? If internationally, it's changed so much within the last 10 years. I remember when I went through menopause, which was 12 years ago now, it was very, very difficult to find adequate information out there. And we are gifted in one way with so much on social media and obviously politicians now engaging and talking about it with doctors, with Instagram is fantastic. And we do have the ability to find out that information, but it's sifting through it and finding the information that's relevant to us as individuals. And there's going to be... It's going to be a bit of a process as well, because what we really want is, 
you know, our doctors to be engaged and informed as part of their training and then to bring that, you know, to the medical field. And that mm-hmm. necessarily, we've basically got a bit of a shortage in menopause doctors, certainly here in the UAE, which is why some of the good ones are crazy, crazy busy. Um, I mentioned there, you know, some really disturbing facts about 67% of, of women talking about you know, some of their symptoms being so horrendous that they can't work. What do you know about the economic impact of menopause internationally? I know it's hard to get data out of this region. Economically, I can see it does affect different countries in the world, especially Canada. It was uh, 3.5 billion it was costing them. I mean, that's a crazy amount of money. If your top executives are going to be suffering from menopause, then company policy has to in some way step in. I know it's very hard for the smaller companies that don't have the resources that, say, Apple have or Adobe, Kellogg's, for example. They're making huge steps in providing for women in menopause and understanding them on every level, managers through to the um, CEO. What are some of the kind of, I guess, gold standard policies? And I'm guessing, I'm hoping that some managers and, you know, HR directors are listening today and thinking that is something we could incorporate because I feel like it's really it's really important to shout out about what some companies are putting in place. What have you seen internationally? You think, yeah, that's a that's fantastic. I think the in the UK they're trying to introduce some kind of menopause support system where the ladies do have access to GPs or at least a group of women that can support them through this phase in life because it's still not really spoken about and in in a lot of places it's still taboo Um, but thanks to celebrities and thanks to politicians and thanks to open-minded business executives we are getting a little bit more say Mm -hmm. I mean and it can affect everything from you know the office environment you know ACs and radiators or you know uniforms even we've seen some menopause friendly uniforms come come into play more layers and breathable fabrics that kind of thing We've got lots of questions for you. We're going to okay. come to the text line in just a minute. Joining us, um, we've got Menopause Livia founder, uh, Livia Reese. We're going to talk about mindset, exercise, diet next. We are talking menopause now and interestingly over a billion women, a billion women will be in menopause by next year. Economic impact is huge on those cruel ironies that just as you might be hitting the absolute peak of your career, you can be really, really affected by physical and um, psychological effects of menopause. And to guide us through the topic, and we're really just scratching the surface today, so I'm going to get her back to go in, in more in depth on some of these topics. Uh, we have got health and fitness expert Livia Reese from Menopause Livia. Um, so we've had a question here from Julie Mallon, who's a sleep consultant. And we've actually had another one asking about insomnia and anxiety, okay. saying, I've got many clients who are really struggling with their sleep. What are your thoughts on topical estrogen? Appreciate this does have medical implications. Now, you're not here as a doctor, obviously, no. but um, you can speak to your own experience. And of course, I guess any other factors that can help women in this age bracket with sleep concerns? Yeah, well, I have topical estrogen myself. Um, it's really because of the intensity of the hot flushes, which is why I take it. Um, I found they were completely overwhelming. And of course, that does affect our sleep. So everything has that knock on effect. Um, But what I tend to advise ladies, because I'm not a doctor, but my speciality is really in lifestyle adjustments, is think about taking some time out for yourself. And in our busy lifestyle, we tend not to do that. And because we are so busy, that raises our cortisol levels. And cortisol, as most of you probably know, is a stress hormone that makes us change our body composition, hold on to fat, but also causes that fight or flight. Oh, I have to get everything done now. I've got the kids. I've got school pickup. I've got family to look after. I feel like you're speaking to my soul right there. Yeah, and that in itself is going to cause the hypothalamus to shut down and slow down, sorry, Mm. systems of the body. So whereas it comes to sleep, we need to try and eliminate as much cortisol as we can. And I always say to my ladies, look at meditation, look at box breathing, you know, try and relax your body. Box breathing is really helpful, actually, because you can do it wherever you you are, taking deep breaths, breathing out slowly, holding at the top and the bottom. Um, Even mesotherapy, so ice baths, saunas work really well in menopause, taking that time out, and it doesn't have to be for an hour at a time. Mm Yoga, fantastic. Pilates, because that's gentle as well. Stretching. So a little bit more time on yourself 
and can we talk exercise? Yes, because yes, you, you you mentioned cortisol there, and I think that yeah. kind of middle age spread it it feels mm-hmm. like it feels inevitable to an awful lot of women that you yeah. know I'm gonna I'm gonna hit menopause and my tummy's going to get really really big, and in an effort to combat that, you know, start hitting the cardio harder, you know, try and you know burn burn burn, and I ultimately put our bodies in, under more stress when you're working with clients what are some of the exercises that you say yes 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 and others going no 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 okay there's a lot of new science out on exercise and um, resistance training is one of the main factors that we should all be looking at unfortunately resistance training has a a, a vision that people don't really want to accept because we're talking about maintaining lean mass and lean mass is your muscle density. Now, it doesn't mean that by picking up weights, we're all going to look like Arnie. It means that we will be able to reduce our body fat over a period of time and reasonably quickly if we have that as part of our exercise protocol. Mm -hmm. The other important thing is cardio. Now, we tend to panic and we go on the treadmill and we'll go out for our runs. So by doing this type of exercise or zone two training, which moderate intensity exercise, what it is doing is causing a rise in cortisol. Now, the new science is saying we need to do shorter exercise timeframes of a higher intensity to reduce the cortisol. Now, the shorter exercise at higher intensity will create more lean muscle mass because studies have been done with women using high intensity in a shorter period of time. So it's, I think you're probably familiar with HIT. So HIT training is taking it up for, taking your heart rate up for a period of time and then reducing it. Okay, so we're taking it to the next level, which means um, sprint interval training. Now, that doesn't mean hours on a treadmill. That sounds awful. Yes, but (laughs) but ladies, we do it in a shorter period of time. And the research has shown that you can change your body composition. You can completely recomp your body. So it targets visceral fat. Now, there is a lady that I would... Um, persuade you to look at. She is a scientist. Her name is Dr. Stacey Sims. She's based in New Zealand, but she's been working with the Women's Health Initiative in the States. She is phenomenal. She has a book called Next Level. Please get it. Please read it. It will open your mind up to a new way of exercise. Right. We're in the studio. Olivia Reese with us today. We're talking about women of a certain age. Um, And I feel like I'm kind of touched on it there about Mm -hmm. this kind of dread I think a lot of women have about the menopause and I'm not gonna you know skip over this some Mm. of it is really awful but mindset is being proven time and time again I guess reframing this idea this transition how important do you think that is that especially ahead of time you know women in their 30s Mm. 30s and 40s thinking do you know what this isn't something that I should be you know it's not the end of my youth just because I'm not fertile anymore doesn't mean that you know life is over It is about embracing it. It's a wonderful change because um, every woman's experience in it is totally individual. Uh, We can't guarantee how our symptoms are going to be. We can look genetically at how our mother was, but my mother never spoke about it. You know, Um, I think we have to embrace the change. We have to understand that the science is now out there whereby we can adapt our lifestyle to make our menopause easier. We do not have to put on visceral fat. That's your deep inner body fat and you don't have to have a larger belly you can keep your figure but you also have to educate yourself so I'm on the ground working with women on a day-to-day basis and I follow the science with books literature out there and following the scientists and the people that have the right information you don't need to be afraid. It really is a fantastic stage in your life. You're more knowledgeable. You've got experience with life. Your kids are growing up. There's so much more to this stage of life than we really think. I heard know? a really lovely example of the day, which was saying that, you know, you know, PMS and these hormonal fluctuations you have as a woman, that when, and I wish I could remember her name, uh, when she went through menopause, she said it was this moment of clarity that, you know, she yes. wasn't having this the kind of befuddlement and confusion because of hormones every month. It was suddenly, no, nope, much more decisive. I know exactly what's going on. I'm feeling much more confident in my abilities of judgment as well. So I thought that was a really interesting perspective. Um, 
And I feel like just normalising conversations about mm. what, you know, what is happening. Interestingly, out of the UK this week, um, pupils at Harrow um, are being given lessons as teenage boys about the menopause, including wearing something called a meno vest. Um, it's got a big lithium battery and it simulates a hot flush, um, which about 75% of women get, I believe, creating a wave of 45 degree heat that travels up the back, goes round the chest, round the neck and then subsides and then repeats at random intervals. I think this is really fantastic. I think, you know, we should all be, you know, increasing our information, our education around this. You've got a big smile on your face thinking about the men of vest. <laughs> yeah, I have actually. I saw it a few years ago. There's a politician in the UK, Carolyn Harris, and she's at the forefront of the menopause revolution over there, getting the celebrities involved. And they were taking the men of vest round to the male MPs. Good. Getting them to wear it so they could understand the overwhelming please, hot sweats. Please tell me this is on YouTube. I'm going to track it down. Um, we didn't even touch on nutrition today, so I'd love to yeah. have you back to, oh, to have a deep yeah. dive into that, if okay, you don't mind. Great. In the meantime, for anyone that's wanting more information, as we talked about exercise there, but all sorts of lifestyle factors, what's the best way of getting in touch with you? You can get in touch with me on email, hello at menopauselivia.com. Go to the website, menopauselivia.com, or find me on Instagram. Perfect. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. pleasure. We are talking lung health this afternoon. Dr. James Aitchison is with us from King's College Hospital. Lung cancer is the most commonest cause of death, both in the US and the UK. Um, But what about here in the UAE? How are you, doctor? I am fine, thank you. And you? I'm really well, thank you. Thank you you for inviting me. My pleasure. I think it's such an important topic and it's really in the news right now out of the UK, certainly as we're looking at, um, you know, the impact of vapes. And interestingly, um, reflecting on the last month, January in the UK, people drinking less alcohol, but but vaping more. So I wanted to ask you, is lung cancer on the rise here in the region? I think so. Um, The population is increasing and the age of the population is increasing. UAE has a very young population and therefore it's not had so many of the old age problems that we Mm. see in the UK and the US where lung cancer death is the commonest cancer death. Here in the UAE it's the third commonest cancer death because the population is so young but it's not just an old person's disease. The longest youngest I've operated on for lung cancer was a girl in England aged 17. Gosh. So can we talk about risk factors? Because presumably she wasn't a smoker for decades at the age of 17. Um, And that tends to be, and it's not a misconception because of course smoking is horrendous for your lungs, but we're going to come back to smoking in in a second. But what are some of the risk factors when it comes to lung cancer? So the biggest risk factor for lung cancer is by far smoking. 80 to 90% of lung cancer is caused by smoking, and that can be in the smokers, but also in the passive smokers. Roy Castle, uh, who people from the UK who are my age will remember. Oh, record breakers. Yes. Um, But incredible, he was a TV presenter, but an incredible musician as well, trumpeter, wasn't he? He played in jazz clubs in those smoke environments, and that's how he contracted lung cancer. That's right. So secondary, what about industrial, the environmental factors? Yes, so next commonest is probably things like asbestos, particularly for people like um, carpenters or builders or decorators who've worked with it because it used to be used as a cheap filler in a lot of building materials. Uh, And unfortunately, I've had to do an operation to remove lung cancer from a non-smoking carpenter yesterday. He's doing well, so that's good. But yeah, that's the next thing. Dr. James, what about um, genetic factors, things that are simply beyond your control? Yes, genetics is probably the leading cause for patients who have not smoked. And as well as increasing the risk when you do smoke, it does increase the risk even without smoking. We are now aware of several types of genes, some of which uh, run in families, but others which are induced by other environmental factors, which then together develop cancers. I wanted to ask you, because we've had three messages on the topic, Jamal saying, please speak about teens and vaping, impact on growing lungs, so I can tell my nephew. Rupert saying, is it true vaping is considered less harmful than smoking tobacco, or is it the way around? What are the potential health risks of vaping? What say you? Yeah, so vaping is not as dangerous as smoking cigarettes, but it's not far off it, and it is certainly considerably dangerous itself. 
The risk with cigarette smoking is multiple problems. Firstly, we have the, the tar and the burning components, which are probably the major risk factor causing lung cancer. We also have the nicotine, which causes problems with blood vessels and can cause heart attacks, strokes, um, blockages of arteries in the legs, leading to gangrene and losing legs, and all of these nasty things that nobody really wants. Mm -hmm. The vapes have the nicotine in. Some of them are cold and don't have the effects of heating, but others have an electric heater and are probably as dangerous as smoking a cigarette. Now, Jamal made, made a really interesting point there about teens and vaping. And I think that's a real point of difference because the way that these vapes are being marketed, you know, the colours, the flavours, it's not a case of people switching from cigarettes to vaping as a way of getting, you know, off smoking. This has become the entry point of smoking for a huge, huge number of young people. Absolutely. I mean, that's the worry, is that this is how people get hooked on nicotine and therefore move to smoking cigarettes later on. Um, the latest US surveys show that 14% of students and teenagers are vaping, which is frightening. What I find interesting about vaping is, <laughs> I'm going to offend a huge amount of people listening today if you do vape, I feel like it, it's a bit like a dummy, like a bit of like a pacifier for, for, for people. Like a teenager's become, dummy. Yeah, because it, be, it becomes like this habitual thing, you know, it's in someone's hand, it's on their desk all the time. But it's become almost kind of socially acceptable to be vaping in places where you'd never light up a cigarette. Yeah, and the way that people vape in buildings where they're told that there's no smoking allowed, mm. and if you actually point it out, a lot of people are rude and uh, just say, well, it's none of your business. Yeah, that's right. Um, David asking a question about air quality and the impact of air quality, Can you know, whether that is here or internationally you know, are there any factors you should be aware of that can put your lungs at risk in that, in that sense? Yes. Um, PMI or very small particles are a considerable risk for asthma and some other inflammatory lung conditions. Not aware that it causes lung cancer in a significant number of people on its own, but it is a major problem. And here in Dubai, we do see a lot of adult asthma. In general, we used to say that if you didn't have asthma as a child, it's very unlikely you will develop asthma as an adult. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, we see a lot of people who, with the dust and the heat and the smoke around, do end up developing adult asthma. To come back to lung cancer, is it one of those cancers where you can catch it early because there's symptoms? Or is it more of a silent killer where, unfortunately, you might not realise just how unwell you are without screening until it is quite progressed? Sadly, the problem with lung cancer is by the time symptoms, that means something causing you problems such as shortness of breath or chest pain or chronic cough or even coughing up blood appear, then it's likely that the cancer is very advanced. And what really we need to do is to move people's awareness so that if they develop the symptoms, they seek help as soon as possible. But also to look for screening where we look at people who have no symptoms at all and then if they are at risk, then they should have basically a CT scan and regular follow-up. When you say screening, what does that involve? Would you mind kind of demystifying yeah. it for so us? So screening means a process where you look for a disease that's treatable, that can save lives and improve health before people are aware of it. So there are screening programs that people are used to. Uh, mammography is probably the best example. Cervical screening is another one, both mm -hmm. of which are established Lung cancer screening has been shown to save a lot of lives, but it is an issue partly due to insurance and partly due to uh, a lack of information about it. But anybody who's aged 45 or over who has a 20-year smoking history or anybody who has a family history of early lung cancer, then these people should have screening. Ideally, this would be a low-dose CT of the chest and the radiation dose within that is some, but small. It's only the equivalent of flying five or six times across the Atlantic from Europe. So nobody says it's dangerous to fly on holiday to the US in terms of the flight. So the risk from the radiation of the scan is minimal, but the scans will look for early changes, small lumps or nodules, as they're called, that may be less than a centimetre, and these could be just an old infection or they could be an early stage cancer. And anything small like this will be followed up and see if it gets bigger. If it doesn't get bigger and it stays the same for two or three years, then the answer is it's almost certainly benign mm -hmm. and, and it can be ignored. Uh, but a, a screening C 
CT scan and then follow-up scans regularly. Last question to you, Dr. James Aitchison, consultant thoracic surgeon at King's. Um, For people who want to promote good lung health, I mean, we're obviously putting down the cigarettes and saying goodbye to the vapes, but in terms of proactive um, activities, uh, things to other things to avoid, things to incorporate. What would you love everyone in the UAE to do to boost their lung health? Well, the lung's easier to keep healthy than a muscle, and I've just been listening to the excellent advice in the uh, previous session. Um, the best way to keep your lungs healthy is eat well, exercise well, uh, don't smoke, don't vape. Try and do it in a a smoke-free environment, but just be active, be out and about. Because the lung doesn't actually uh, do things. It is moved in and out by the chest wall and uh, the heart pumps blood through it. And uh, it's basically passive as a passenger. So as long as you look after the rest of the person, lung health should be good. Well, I did hear the other day that lung capacity and lung health is a really good indicator of how long we're going to live. So, yeah, use it or lose it. Dr. James, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. You can find Dr. James H. as a consultant thoracic surgeon there at King's College Hospital. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken. It is all about your animals between now and five o'clock and the fantastic Dr. Joanna Porto from Dog Venture HQ in the studio. Um, I sent you a video this morning because we're we're Instagram friends now. (laughs) I sent you a video this morning and it was a vet saying that she can't watch and enjoy cute animal videos because she's there diagnosing the animals concerned about behaviours and I wondered if this was something that resonated with you Oh absolutely, I mean I love her because she's got zero filter so she actually puts out what most of the vets would like to talk about but but that can be tricky, right? It can be the dark side of being a vet. You know too much. So even on a normal uh, day out, you're walking with your dog. So you're undercover. People don't know you're a vet. And then you catch these conversations and or you see these specific breeds or you see this specific problem happening with the dog. And you can't switch off. <laughs> no, you can't switch off. You, you can't. You're all constantly working. And I, I now Instagram is just feeding me lots of animal videos right now, which, <laughs> which, which yeah, I, don't, I don't mind. It's fine. But one of the kind of the most popular yeah. trends right now around kind of vets is yeah. going around a surgery, speaking to different staff members and saying, based on your work, what is the breed you would never get? So I wanted to ask you that. Oh, my God. It's probably almost easier to ask me what breed would I have because the list would be shorter. (laughs) Go on. So I would probably not have Great Danes, Labradors, Golden Retrievers, Cavalier King Charles, Maltese, French Bulldogs, (laughs) English Bulldogs. uh, And the list goes on and on and on. And this is because some of these are... You know, predisposed to absolute behavior genetics. and health problems. At the end of the day, it's genetics, right? And then if you don't know if they, most of the times there's not the most correct breeding. So they mm-hmm. will uh, pass out these traits that are not desirable, right? So you'll end up having orthopedic issues, allergy issues, uh, all sorts. So. so we're flying the flag today for the mutts, for the Dubai specials. And actually, these mixed breeds can be a bit hardier. Uh, yeah, I mean, Some. It, it really does depend, right? Sometimes being mixed breeds depends what the mixed breeds are. Oh, that's sorry. I was thinking more like yeah. your, your your Dubai specials rather ah. than a kind of a designer dog, which oh. no. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's another issue. <laughs> What's coming into clinic? What's keeping you busy at Dog Venture? Um, let's see. Um, I'm getting more and more like dentistry because that's an area that I'm quite passionate about. So everyone that feels that their pet has a dental issue. You're the girl. Yeah, I'm, I'm the go-to. Uh, so that's really exciting because I, I do love it. Um, let's say there's always, uh, there's a bit of everything like gold ba- bladder issues, uh, bladder stones issues. Yeah. Much like the show, we can help you with all sorts of different issues today. Um, we've had questions about when to neuter and spay, about... Uh, we're already getting on to toilet chat as well. Before we go to the text line, Dr. Joanna, it's always the pooing and the chewing. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask you about cognitive decline 
yes. in animals. And I should just take this opportunity to say happy birthday to our dog Jarvis. He turned 11. Oh, happy birthday, Jarvis. He turned wow. 11. 11. That's a lovely age, though. Lucky number. It is. He's doing He's doing great. He, he had a diagnosis late last year of his, I remember, his yeah. heart and problem. He's, okay, he's, he's doing He's doing great. We're That's trying to good. not get him too overexcited. Yeah. Um, but it did make me think about senior animals. And yeah, basically asking you, do you see cognitive decline? And much like you might see dementia or Alzheimer's in, in humans. Absolutely. That's the equivalent. Obviously, you have different degrees. So when you have really cognitive decline, so when it's mostly severe, then yes, it's equivalent to a very severe impairment. So dementia or Alzheimer's. How do you know as an owner that this is something your animal's going through? So it is complicated. I think it has to be from both sides. It has to be like a proactive effort from the vets to try and have like frank, honest conversations ask the right questions uh, because most of the times you've got already 25% of decline from the ages of six. So the dog is not even a senior dog yet and he may already be experiencing some form of degeneration in the brain. So it's very important to ask the questions. Uh, You do have like the Purina Institute has created uh, a formulary called the DISHA tool. So it stands out because of some um, signs of that dementia. So how would it manifest in terms of behavior? I mean, we think about confusion or, you know. That's the most typical, but obviously you've got... uh, uh, different degrees, but yes, m- most common would be the disorientation, the the, the wandering. The you see a dog that's starting to get a bit like aggressive, or his character changes a bit. Maybe he's not as social as he was before. Maybe he sleeps more during the day and he's more active at night. So there's alteration in the sleep wake cycles. There might be an accident or two in the house, which he never did before. Mm-hmm. He might get clingier to the owner. So there might be separation anxiety. All of a sudden, he might forget what he learned before. Uh, he might start getting a bit afraid of some uh, sounds or uh, visual stimuli. So it, it's very, very variable. And also, it ends up being very underdiagnosed because owners, a lot of the times they think, Oh, that's normal. He's just aging. So he's getting older, you know. So what is the power then of having a diagnosis? You know, when you think about, you know, you mentioned, you know, whether it's diet, you know, medication. So prevention is key. And the sooner you detect it, then you're probably still on time to try and slow it down. You're not going to stop it. You're not going to cure it. You can only... Uh, give him the best quality of life. So the sooner, the better. And for that, you have food. There's a, a, a lot of brands of food. Uh, Purina has launched NeuroCare. Uh, and it all has to do with the fact that the brain's metabolism declines. So you give it, that food has an alternate substrate. So it's not so much glucose. It comes from MCT oil, which is uh, admirable. That comes from coconut oil. Wow. Uh, so it's proven also for people. So once I learned it, I started taking MCT uh, oil. Oh, wow. uh, it could be a bit tricky on the tummy initially, okay, but, but then it. it's it's going to be fantastic uh, for cognition because we're, we're, we're aging as well, right? So <sighs> Feels like it. I'm <laughs> so there are things you can put so, in place. But absolutely. Besides the diet, you can do some environmental stimulation. So you can get like interactive toys, Play with your dog, give it mental and physical stimulation, uh, right? Give it some exercise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have supplements as well. They're all like vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, um, fatty acids. They are fundamental for the, the brain. And, and you have medication as well. There is a, a dopamine uh, increasing medic- medication called selegiline. So that could help as well. So... Obviously, the sooner, the better. That's why you, from the age of six, seven, start being also honest with your with your mm. vet uh, and tell him if there's been any change in behavior or personality because the sooner, the, the better. Dr. John, we're talking about cognitive decline there in animals, dogs in particular. We're going to the text line next. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. Joining us in studio to answer your questions on the text line, on the phone line, it is Dr. Joanna Porto from Dog Venture HQ. And to the text line we go. You're very popular today. Great. Um, a message <laughs> saying, what could be the cause of my dog's excessive licking? He's eight years old, blood work is okay, already on a hypoallergenic food, but licks his paws so much. Okay, so uh, your dog seems to be still showing signs of 
itchiness. I mean, that's not the only cause. But considering you said your dog is on hypoallergenic food, then he does have a, a background history of allergies. That it, other causes could be um, pain in the joints, uh, mites in between the toes, a foreign body, a cut. So obviously, um, it, the the feet have always got to be checked by a vet. Mm. Uh, most likely it is an, an inflammation uh, of the feet called a pododermatitis or even an infection because excessive licking can lead to that. So my best advice would be uh, go to your usual vet. Uh, just have them checked because sometimes you may need a medicated wash yeah, or some topical, topical treatment okay, to get that under control because just the food alone, uh, that's probably not going to be enough if your dog's still showing signs of licking and itching it could be unrelated okay hope yeah. that helps and Lisa's saying I mean it's, it's all glamour in the world of veterinary science isn't it <laughs> how often how often should a dog's anal glands be cleaned lovely so. lovely <laughs> yeah uh, so my answer to that is depends if there is there are no issues with the, the anal glands then don't touch them don't empty them uh, but if you see signs of scooting licking rubbing his bum on the floor or a presence of a very nasty fishy smell oh God. then that's the time for you to head down to the vets and have them checked it could just they could just be needing to be emptied or they might have an infection so it's always good to just do that if there are symptoms so either you're smelling it or he's showing you that he's not very comfortable with the back end. The scooting. Yeah. It's it, <laughs> yeah. I, I shouldn't laugh, but it is a very it is, comical thing It is thing comical, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing probably Bust not the favourite part of your job, but it's something it, I is, it is not. And uh, after COVID, we were wearing masks and I uh, didn't have to hide my weird <laughs> face. So then after that, I had to tell myself, you're not wearing a mask anymore. Get it together so I don't pull the weird face of, yeah. Oh, I love it. Okay, right. What am I sent in a question and a photo beautiful beautiful cat with eyes two different completely different colored eyes saying Ooh, beautiful we've adopted brother and sister lately called polka and carmella by the way guys i love it when you tell me what your pets are called polka and carmella are three months old they're so great together when should we consider neuter spaying and will that change their behavior towards each other how old are they uh three months old three months old okay well you still have time uh, yes, it is recommended that you neuter them both. So you castrate the boy and you spay the girl uh, because you do not want them procreating. So no. no. So just check for symptoms. Uh, but usually for the boy around five, six months and sometimes for the girl as well. So just pay attention if the girl is coming into heat or if the boy is showing signs of marking territory or getting too interested in the female. Just around the six months mark, five, six months, just have them check, talk to your vet and usually they will tell you when the appropriate time is, but around that And what age. about that second part about the changing behavior towards each other. Can you try and do that? Um, so, I mean, that is a bit of a myth, I'm afraid. Yes, sometimes they they can calm down. So hormones, they do have an influence in our behavior, but it's not that drastic. Mm -hmm. And it is necessary if you do have a female and a male cat. Okay. Necessary. <laughs> awesome. All the very best. Beautiful cats there. Um, and Stephen's been in touch. You mentioned earlier some of your breeds that you probably wouldn't choose necessarily to bring into the home. And this oh no, and breed was on your list. <laughs> Stephen's saying, but what do I need to know about getting a golden retriever? It's a rescue girl who's about eight months old. Do you know what? I follow a lot of rescue groups mm. on Instagram yeah. and Facebook. A huge number of retrievers around oh, right now. absolutely. I see a lot of them. It's one of the most popular breeds here. Um, absolutely. Um, so my best recommendations would be try and get the most uh, information you can get uh, regarding diet is essential, uh, vaccination status, and get your girl checked. So physical exam is essential. We do know that they have congenitally ten tendencies to have orthopedic issues. So there's a lot of elbow dysplasia, hip dysplasia, uh, allergies as well. So have your girl checked mm -hmm. thoroughly. Uh, and just see if there's any recommendations. But usually uh, consider, well, a golden retriever, to be honest, if it's a girl, we don't even consider uh, spaying golden retrievers. They are a genetic exception. What? You don't actually need to neuter a golden retriever. Yes, there there are what? studies that prove that. Um, Why? How? 
I can, I can show it to you. Yes, it's super curious. Uh, but I would definitely check the oral health of that girl if the teeth are fine and maybe consider having uh, uh, some x-rays uh, under anesthetic just to check how the hip is. See if she's got any wobbly walk or how the muscle distribution is. Just overall get her thoroughly checked. And, and Stephen, get a lint roller. There's going to be hair <laughs> Yes, everywhere. the shedding, especially here in Dubai. Yeah, absolutely. Stephen, all the very best and well done for rescuing us. I said, I've seen an awful lot of golden retrievers in need of homes right now. So great work, sir. Uh, we've had a number of messages about diet, which we're going to turn our attentions. We also had a message about a one-year-old St. Bernard who was obsessed with drinking water from the toilet. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, some dehydration and dogs. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. Joining us in studio from Dog Venture HQ, Dr. Joanna Porto. We are going to be helping you out. We're going to do a bit of a quick fire round, I think, on the text line, Joanna, because we've got an awful lot of messages. Let's for- do this. Ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Shoot. <laughs> By the way, could we just say how cute the photos are that we've had? They're super oh, cute. My my favourite part of the week. Photos I do. <laughs> it's 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 really lovely. And as I said, questions, photos, comments, all put you in the draw to win a three month supply of Proplan pet food. Let's start with Churro. Churro, that's a great name. Great name. Churro wants to know what supplements he can have to help with dry skin. He's on a hypoallergenic food, has medical shampoo and a probiotic. He is soft, but skin is dry. Now we saw a photo of Churro. What breed is that? That is a chow chow. A very fluffy, a very, cute, very fluffy chow chow. Yeah. And are they known for having any skin conditions genetically or? Yes, they are. Yeah, they're, they are very prone because their coat is very thick and dense and they're also prone to having allergies of all sorts, environmental, food-related, atopic dermatitis. So, so yes, they can uh, have skin issues. So I see the churros already on hypoallergenic diet, but uh, it would be important to see if there's no underlying condition like seborrhea or dry skin or an infection, okay? If there are secondary infections and they're not dealt with, you're you're not going to achieve uh, a normal healthy skin with no symptoms so mm. important to have a skin consultation um, maybe have the vet collect a few samples just make sure that there's no lesions no flakiness nothing uh, but supplementations for skin always a good source of omegas so omega 3s omega 6 um, so yeah get yourself a, a good skin supplementation with those fatty acids is that uh, something you could just buy or is it a prescription thing doc? no you can buy mostly at uh, pet shops uh, vets have them as well so yeah try and get yourself one that has uh, a lot of like good fish derived oils or primrose Rose oil, okay. Uh, no acids. coconut oil, please. No, absolutely a no-no. Is that, that, is that something you've... Yeah, I've, I've seen clients using that and that's not a good source of fatty acids for the skin. So, yeah. Okay, there you go. Chris, great question. What a dog. Seriously gorgeous. <laughs> um, message here saying, um, I adopted a one-year-old St. Bernard in October. Wow. I feel like it's just like Beethoven. I'm here for it. He was obsessed with drinking water, initially drinking from the toilet whenever a seat was left oh. open. While we have stopped that, he will steal water from our other dog's bowl unless they're in the middle of drinking it. We okay. basically can't leave water in their bowls. Is there anything we can do to stop it's our first dog. Um, a chow chow can get dehydrated and even wakes us up in the night to have more water. Yeah. Poor chow chow. He'll end up not drinking water. Like a raisin. <laughs> so... Uh, The important thing here is to establish uh, how much he's drinking because, yes, you may think, okay, he's drinking excessively, uh, but it might still be at a normal range. So a St. Bernard is obviously a a much bigger, heavier, larger dog than a Chow Chow. So even his drinking requirements will be a lot bigger. So mm-hmm. I would advise you to measure how much he's drinking. So even if you have to obviously separate both dogs, uh, get yourself a good few bowls of water because he's a St. Bernard and just measure really how much he is freely uh, drinking because for a St. Bernard, that could be anywhere from like 50, 60 kilos at least or, or on that range, I think. Uh, normally your maximum is about 100 milliliters per kilo. Okay, so we're talking if it's a 50 kilo dog, only from five liters 
onwards, you'd consider abnormal, so excessive. Okay, so, so yeah, you need to measure it first. Measure it first okay. to see if it's just normal, because once again, comparison to the chow chow, he's going to drink a lot more. So he might be telling you, you're not giving me enough water to drink. Get the boy a bucket. But <laughs> if it's too much, then it has to be seen because the causes for excessive yeah. uh, drinking can be psychological Mm -hmm. as well it could be stress behavioral psychogenic but it could be renal liver hormonal diabetes uh, uh, urinary stones urinary issue as well that causes him to be dehydrated and drink more so first measure how much and then if you see it's over that quantity then please head down to the vets get some uh, blood tests then a urine test as well at least that as a minimum database to Peace make sure okay. yeah absolutely all the best a message here saying how do we handle a picky eater puppy mm. got a four-month-old multi-poo it's currently having the royal cannon mini puppy kibble mm. So, um, there's always two sides of the story, right? Uh, You have a picky eater, but maybe the owners also uh, enable him to be even pickier. And and then dogs are very smart. And if they can get away with not eating a certain meal and then owners panicking and immediately giving him the next best thing, Mm -hmm. then obviously the brain's going to say, wow, I like this. This works. So I'll keep on doing it because I get get what I want. So uh, a lot of times I see that in context is that owners, they panic. They d- Obviously, we all want our pets to eat. And when they don't eat, we think, are they sick? Something's going on. But sometimes, especially at the beginning, you do need to set the rules, right? Boundaries and, and say, Mr. or Mrs., this is your meal. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you don't want to starve your puppy, especially when they're puppies. But you do give that initial meal because they're eating at least three to four times a day. So that first meal, you try it. You, you give them half an hour. Obviously, you can put a bit of warm water at the beginning. Try not to add too many things. Their, their gut is sensitive. So you don't want to be start to adding things and then they get gastroenteritis or mm-hmm. they start with skin issues because Maltese also have sensitive skin. So try less is more. So try that after half an hour. They don't eat. Remove it away. Trust me, the, the puppy will get uh, hungry and eventually will know that he can't get away with just not eating. Okay. So a lot of the times it doesn't mean they're sick. They're just smart. <laughs> you might be being played. However, as you said, if it is sustained not eating, uh, could absolutely. Be, then go to the vet, get some uh, more advice. Thank you so much for your time today. That's well, absolutely. I know. I miss being here. I know. So thank you for having we'll me back. We'll have you back soon. In the meantime, <laughs> for anyone we didn't get to, we'll put those messages in for next week and you can be found where? Where? Well, you can find me at Dog Venture HQ or you can contact me on Instagram at Joanna the Vet. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you Absolute very much. Superstar. Um, I was there at Dog Venture at the weekend. They've got a swimming pool for doggies. It was brilliant. So I was having a chat with the owner about getting my daughter into their kids' dog training academy. That is going to be the plan. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.